All right. Um, I want to apologize to everyone. Um, we, I was in the middle of teaching Sabbath school when the internet started um, acting very bizarrely, and then it cut off completely. Um, and then it, I, we just couldn't get an internet to work. So I've actually driven over to Sam Michael's house. Um, uh, and we're going to try to do this. So I'm going to just hold on one second. Um, we're trying to get people onto this stream here. I just want to make sure that um, everyone is able to log on to this one instead. Because... Um, yeah, people are, are, I know, are waiting and trying to trickle into this one. Um, and so I just want to make sure that everyone has a chance to to join this one before we get started here. Because on my YouTube, it says there's zero people online right now. Um, I'm not sure if that's accurate. One second. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's see here. It is working. It just no one has joined. I think if people uh, if sure. don't. Um, just make sure that people can see this one. No, I'm good. Thanks, Mer Thanks, Michael. Um, ah, Mervin's joined. So we've got okay. We've got two people now. <laughs> so um, yes, again, apologies. We've we've had major internet issues at home, um, and so just this morning we just could not get it to work properly, and so we have. I've driven over to Sam Michael's house, um, and I feel so bad. Like I've, <laughs> they've now like left with the baby. Um, and so um, I've, I've taken over their house. So thank you, Sam Michael. Um, I hope oh, we've got four people now. So it looks like people are starting to join, which is good. And we'll get started in a second here. What a week. Um, good things happened this week. We had Micah and Joshua went back to school for the very first time in like 90 days where they were both out of the house at the same time because kindy, uh, Joshua was able to go back to kindy and Micah's uh, school uh, resumed as well. So very, very grateful for that. Um, this week we also had the storm and I think maybe the storm is the reason why we're having issues with the internet um, because we noticed that the internet was spotty since the storm, but it was still working. But this morning as I was teaching Sabbath school, it just completely stopped and went bonkers. And we tried to reset and anyway, gave up. And so then uh, here I am at St. Michael's house. Um, I want to say thank you to everyone who donated for ADRA. We had our trivia night last Saturday. It went really well. Congratulations to the winning team. Um, and we were able to raise over $3,500 for ADRA. So thank you everyone who donated. Um, yes, massive efforts. Really, really happy to be able to raise funds for a good cause. All right, now we've got six people on, so hopefully, um, that's all right. We're going to keep going. Um, happy birthday, Mervin. I know you're watching, so happy birthday to you for November the 3rd. Um, I think that's a Tuesday. 
and somewhere around there. And Erica is on the 4th of November. So happy birthday to you, Erica, in advance. And Maggie's is next Saturday. So happy birthday to you in advance as well. Today's offering, um, I'm not able to use um, PowerPoint when, I, when I'm on my laptop. Basically, I'm on my laptop at San Michael's house. So I'm not able to use the PowerPoint slides. Um, but if you go to egiving.org.au, you can give for today's local offering. Um, which is going towards education. So basically it goes to help fund the Adventist schools um, around Australia. And so whatever you give towards that today will we'll, we'll go towards helping to fund those schools, which are really fantastic ways to reach the community. If you want to give to the local church, there's a whole drop-down menu um, where you can give towards a local church, where you can give towards other, other good causes as well. All right, I think I'm just going to get started here. Let me have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into it. <clears throat> Dear Holy Father, um, it's been a bit of a chaotic morning. <laughs> I pray that your Holy Spirit would help um, me to share uh, with clarity of thought and mind. Um, thank you for San Michael <laughs> being able to provide me a place to, to live stream. pray that... Um, Everything logistically will go well for the rest of today and that we can figure out what's wrong with the internet and that we can fix it in time for next uh, next week. Thank you for the long weekend. I hope everyone can have a safe um, and and good long weekend. Um, for, for the first time in a very long time, Father God, we're able to travel if you want to and um, see people that we haven't seen in a long time. And I just pray, Lord, that as we reconnect and as things open, that you'll keep us safe and um, help us to be able to remember what um, what it means to have community and um, to be able to be feel that gratitude in our hearts and to live with that sense of gratitude always. I pray that as I continue this, um, this challenging topic of is Christianity good, um, that everyone who's watching and listening would be blessed, um, would be inspired, would be challenged to want to know you for themselves. I pray in your son's name. Amen. All right. So last week, I looked briefly at the impact of Christianity over the years. And I started by, you know, looking at the bad and the ugly, you know, examples of how the Christian church or Christian leaders or individuals have failed to live up to the message of Christ and brought much harm and pain on people, groups, and individuals over the years. Then I shared some ways that Christianity has been good for humanity, the development of hospitals and social welfare, universities, um, the constitutions, etc., can trace their roots back to Christian organizations and individuals that were motivated by the healing and teaching ministry of Jesus. And I share that we might, we, we should ask not just is Christianity good, but is Christianity good enough? And how it's up to us to really keep our eyes on Jesus and follow him because only Jesus is good. And only Jesus is good enough to transform us from the inside out so that we can better represent Christ and actually serve our community. But that was only one part of the answer is Christianity good. And today's part two, and there will be a, a part three to come. But today, as I continue looking at this question, is Christianity good? I'm, I'm, I guess today I'm looking specifically at, you know, what does it offer us, right? Why, why is Christianity good for me? In 1658, um, Blaise Pascal, a French mathematician, a physicist and philosopher, applied the elements of game theory to show that belief in Christian religion is good. 
in what is now known as Pascal's wager, he laid the foundation for the modern theory of probabilities. He said, people can choose to believe in God or choose not to believe in God. God either exists or he doesn't. And if you believe that he exists and he does, well, you will gain infinite happiness. If you don't believe and God does exist, you experience infinite loss. On the other hand, if you believe in God and God doesn't exist, you might have experienced some temporary disadvantages of living a Christian life, but what else do you lose? And if you don't believe in God and God doesn't exist, then you gain some temporary advantages of being free from Christian morality or you know, any other kind of Christian ex- expectations in your lifetime. But otherwise, you know, um, what other gain is there is what he said. And the quote um, that he said is, let us weigh the gain and loss in wagering that God is. Let us estimate these two chances. If you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. Wager then without hesitation that he is. And whether you agree with his uh, wager or not, one thing that he presents is, is that at the end of the day, it takes faith to believe in the existence of God, but it also takes faith to believe that we are here by chance and that nothing is permanent. Either worldview cannot be proven without a shadow of a doubt. And so they both require faith. They both require a wager, if you will, on probability. And so as individuals, we have to decide which worldview has greater evidence, which worldview resonates with our experiences, our observations, and our understanding of life. A few years ago, I read a memoir that touched me profoundly. You might have read it as well. It's called When Breath Becomes Air by Dr. Paul Kalanithi. Now, Paul, his whole life, had always been intrigued by the themes of time and death, and the meaning of life. And so originally he had studied literature and philosophy. Then he realized that so much of what creates meaning is, is done by the hardware in the brain. So then he studied um, neuroscience and he became a, a neuro, neurological surgeon. Um, he also did a lot of research in neuroscience and he received the American Academy of Neurological Surgery's highest award for resident research. Now, every day as a surgeon, he grappled with death, um, with you know, because he had to care for patients, um, and sometimes he lost the battle. And even when he won the battle, he knew that one day death would still win. And sadly, he had to face his own mortality uh, in May of 2013 when he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer at the age of 36. And in 2014, he started writing. At first, he just wrote a few pieces for the New York Times, um, but then he started writing a memoir. Unfortunately, he didn't get to finish it. He, he died in March 2015. But his wife, Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, posthumously completed and published the book entitled When Breath Becomes Air. And the book has many great gems and thoughts about death and life and the meaning of life. And one of the questions that Dr. Paul Kalanithi posed was, what makes life meaningful enough to go on living. And in his younger years, he had tried to form and find meaning in his life without God. But he came to this conclusion. He said, I spent a good chunk of my 20s trying to build a frame for such an endeavor. The problem, however, eventually became evident. To make science the arbiter of metaphysics is to banish not only God from the world, but also love, hate, meaning, to consider a world that is self-evidently not the world we live in. 
That's not to say that if you believe in meaning, you must also believe in God. It is to say, though, that if you believe that science provides no basis for God, then you are almost obligated to conclude that science provides no basis for meaning. And therefore, life itself doesn't have any. In other words, existential claims have no weight. All knowledge is scientific knowledge. Yet the paradox is that scientific methodology is the product of human hands and thus cannot reach some permanent truth. Science is based on reproducibility and manufactured objectivity. As strong as that makes its ability to generate claims about matter and energy, it also makes scientific knowledge inapplicable to the existential, visceral nature of human life, which is unique and subjective and unpredictable. Science may provide the most useful way to organize empirical reproducible data, but its power to do so is predicated on its inability to grasp the most central aspects of human life. Hope, fear, love, hate, beauty, envy, honor, weakness, striving, suffering, virtue. Between these core passions and scientific theory, there will always be a gap. And then he goes on to quote how um, many an atheist from the Nobel Prize winning French biologist Jacques Monod, they believe this, what, what, what Jacques Monod said, that the ancient covenant is in pieces. Man at last knows that he is alone in the unfeeling immensity of the universe, out of which, out of which he emerged only by chance. It I returned to the central values of Christianity, sacrifice, redemption, forgiveness, because I found them so compelling. There is a tension in the Bible between justice and mercy, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the New Testament says you can never be good enough. Goodness is the thing and you can never live up to it. The main message of Jesus, I believed, is that mercy trumps justice every time. It's a really good book and I highly recommend um, that you read it. He passed away in 2015, but his, but his wife and his daughter and his memoir live on to ask us that question. What makes life meaningful enough to go on living? If there is no God and we are alone in this universe, just a speck in a chain of chance events, then what is the purpose of our short lives in the span of chaos and time? If there is no God, why do we yearn for meaning? Why do we yearn for justice? And why do we, like Paul, are drawn? Why are we drawn to the ideas of mercy and redemption and forgiveness? It's interesting. I was watching this documentary about babies and how babies as young as three months old have this inherent sense of justice. They've done experiments with, you know, dolls and puppets and, and they can tell uh, by, by looking at babies and, and what they spend the most time looking at, what they're drawn to. And they play out these scenarios of these puppets. One is doing the right thing and the other one comes along and pushes it or, you know, throws the ball to the other side and does something unfair. And, and, and at the end, when they bring out these puppets um, and they and they ask the baby to which one do they want? Even babies as long as three months will spend more time looking at the one that was just, looking at the one that was fair. The very interesting study that they've done, and and looking at that, there is this sense of justice that all of us are born with, that we yearn for fairness, that we yearn for right over wrong. Could it be that the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, who said 3,000 years ago that God has set eternity in our human hearts, could it be that he was right and that that's why death feels so wrong? If there is no God, then why are we even talking about 
whether Christianity is good or bad. You know, why do we even care about this topic? Why have billions of people in history placed their bets on Christianity, going all in on a, a religion that didn't always have the majority, but in fact started out as a persecuted minority? Last week, I shared about some of the harmful things that Christians have done over the centuries, but that's not how Christianity began. Almost 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus was crucified. And this is corroborated by non-Christian sources from the first century that mentioned Jesus and his followers. For example, Josephus, um, he wrote about Jesus in his History of the Jews, written in 93 AD. Tacitus, a Roman historian, described how Christ was crucified by Pilate and how the Christians multiplied and were persecuted by Nero. Flagon, Flagon, <laughs> he wrote um, about how when Jesus was crucified, that the sun was, there was a full eclipse of the sun. Um, a Syrian philosopher, Mara Barser Peon, uh, alluded to Jesus as well. Um, Pliny the Younger, Suetonius, Lucian of Samosata, these are some of the non-Christian uh, primary sources who wrote about Jesus and his followers. By these accounts, Jesus was a real figure who lived and was crucified. Now, the gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible, they talk about what happened afterwards. Because what, and this once again is corroborated um, with, with the historians that these Christians, these early Christians, who by all accounts, should be devastated by the violent and tragic death of their leader. Instead of hiding in, in their you know, rooms, um, weeping and lamenting and being afraid of having the same fate fall on them, were seen publicly proclaiming that Jesus is alive. And there were a, a crowd of people gathered uh, in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, which was a Jewish uh, feast where everyone gathered together um, every year for. And in front of these large crowd, there was Peter, the very man who had denied Jesus, who hadn't been afraid, now standing publicly, boldly proclaiming that Jesus is alive. And they witnessed not just him, but the other disciples preaching. And they were preaching in, in one language, but the various people from around the nations who had gathered for the feast all heard that sermon preached in their own languages. And they saw these, this you know, group of followers, a small group who had no political power, nothing to gain except imprisonment and martyrdom, which many of them did face, having this joy in their hearts and, and sharing and, and performing the miracles that Jesus himself had, had, had uh, performed, healing the sick, raising the dead. And the people who witnessed Peter and James and John and the other followers of Jesus being a completely different individuals and performing the miracles and sharing with such authority and power about Jesus being alive, that these individuals who witnessed that then went home to their various cities and families and shared what they had seen and heard for themselves. And they too, as they decided, uh, to accept, to weigh the balance of the evidence that they had experienced and seen. And they made that decision to accept and follow Jesus as well. And then they received the gift of the Holy Spirit that Peter has spoken about. Peter had said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. That's from Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. And these individuals, these new, the second generation of Christians, right? So you've got the first generation who had seen, touched Jesus. And then, and, um, and, and many in Jerusalem had witnessed Jesus's crucifixion and what had happened, uh, when he died and also what had happened when he resurrected and, and the guards had run around the city sharing, you know, what had happened with the earthquake and the angels. So lots of people in that first generation, they were almost primary eyewitnesses. Then you get the secondary kind of generation of believers who are believing based on the witnesses of others, but also who received the Holy Spirit. And so through the Holy Spirit, they were convicted that this was true. Through the Holy Spirit, they experienced the freedom of, of having their sins be forgotten. Through the Holy Spirit, they now had this uh, immense joy and peace in their hearts, a new purpose, a new meaning in their life that they didn't have before. Through the Holy Spirit, they experienced love in community, joy in even in their suffering, peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control despite the persecution, despite the temptations of living in that first century Roman Empire. And so these individuals, some of them were slaves, some were imperial officers, some were tent makers, some were scholars. Some were jailers, some were entrepreneurs, these men and women from all walks of life, young and old, Greek and Jew, Ethiopian, Macedonian, people from all backgrounds joined this new minority movement. Why? Not because it offered prosperity or power or security. In fact, it was the opposite. Being a, becoming a Christian meant you would likely, you're going to be imprisoned. Um, you could even be killed. Not just in a you know quick way, but really uh, horrific ways. Being mauled by lions in the Colosseum, for example, you could be exiled. But still, they believed, and Christianity spread because the early Christians weren't just converts; they were witnesses. They were witnesses of what God was doing in their own hearts and lives. They had their own stories to tell of a living Jesus. I wish I had my, uh, I, I wish I could share my slides with you because I've got these maps of how Christianity spread first in that first century, you know, just in Jerusalem and the surrounding lands. Then by the fourth uh, and fifth centuries, it starts spreading throughout the Roman Empire. And by 600 AD, it had spread to Europe and, and, and parts of the Middle East. Um, and then, of course, as um, we get into the in 11th and 12th centuries and beyond, and you have people, explorers and uh, missionaries and you know colonists and etc spreading out and and discovering new new places um well not new but going to new lands that were new for them um that they then uh, began to uh, share this idea of christianity sometimes for worse sometimes for better but by 1800 we have 204 million christians in the world by 1900 there are 558 million and by 2000, 1.98 billion. Um, and in 2021, there are approximately 2.7 billion Christians. And I'm looking at a map that you can't see, sorry. But in the map, um, you can see how uh, the different continents and the concentrations of Christians, um, it's still the major religion in the world. Um, in 
you know, this part of the world, in Australia, I should say, um, we're just at that tipping point of like 50, little, just a little over 50%. And it is declining here and in other places um, in, in the world. But in a lot of other places, it is still exponentially growing. 2.7 billion Christians. And all of them, including myself, we all fail at various times in our lives to live up to the message of Jesus. We all fall short of his example. And as I shared last week, many in the name of Christ have done terrible things. But many in the name of Christ and by the power of Christ have done amazing things. And so when we look at the core of Christianity, which is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When we look at that core message, it is it is so different from you know comparing it to the list of terrible things that Christians have done, and we compare that with with their actions. We see that they did not live up to the core message of Christianity. And the history that what we, that we have looked at last week still doesn't neg- negate the witness of millions of people over the years who have shared what God has done through them in their hearts, the transformation of these individuals' lives. And and all of that also doesn't negate the pull of the Spirit in our hearts and minds that bring us back to that question again and again. Why are we here? And what does it all mean? Christianity offers us several answers to these questions. One, it offers us a worldview, a framework to understand where we came from and where we are going. It gives us a sense of identity. It tells us our place in the universe and our role in the timeline of history. The story of Christianity is that human beings were created in the image of God, but that an enemy of God has distorted that image and drawn us away from him. So the battle between good and evil rages here on earth, a battle that we have all failed at some point, a battle where there have been many casualties. But a champion has come to fight for us, to win for us what we could never do on our own. His name was Jesus, and he was God himself, come in the flesh to redeem humanity. His life and teachings challenged the social, economic, religious, political boundaries of the times. His closest friends were tax collectors and prostitutes and fishermen and outcasts. He loved his enemies and taught his followers to do the same. He cared for every life, no matter how discarded or belittled by the rest of society. He healed the sick and raised the dead to life. But when the leaders, intimidated by his upside-down kingdom, conspired with the Roman rulers to crucify him, he didn't lift a finger to save himself. Instead, he chose to become our sacrifice, our substitute, our savior, by dying for us on the cross. Because he knew that his death would pay the price for all of humanity's ransom. And so with his death, he freed us from the grasp of the enemy. And when Jesus resurrected three days later, he became the guarantee that one day we will also have the resurrection. And before he ascended back to heaven, he told his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And he promised to come again, this time not as a baby, 
but as a mighty king with the host of angels to wake the dead to life. In the meantime, he asks us to follow him, to trust him, to live with his principles of love and service, to follow his example of caring for those around us, sharing the good news that he offers eternal life to anyone who is willing to believe. That's the story of Christianity. Jesus tells us that we are children of God, created to be loved and to love, that we are precious in his sight, that he knows the number of hairs on our heads, and that there is nothing too small that we're worried about, that he doesn't care about. He tells us that we are not alone, that he sees us. He knows our sorrows and that we can talk to him as to a friend, that he's listening, that he's comforting and working behind the scenes to bring about the ultimate peace and healing. He tells us that death is not the end, but a pause, an unconscious sleep until he resurrects everyone when he comes again for that great reunion day. And he tells us that the chaos and the suffering in our lives, the result of living in a battleground between good and evil, that the day is coming when that will be over, when the war is over and he will make all things new, all things whole, and there will be no more pain, no more crying, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. He tells us that the increasing intensity of natural disasters and pandemics of wars and conflicts, that these are warning signs that the relentless greed and violence of mankind is putting the earth at breaking point and that he is coming soon. He tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love and forgive our enemies, to share our bread with the hungry and to visit those in prison. And he tells us in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted from the past two years, right? of the pandemic and the lockdown and remote learning and everything, everything that's happened. And Jesus says, hey, come to me, right? All of you who are tired of holding it all together. All of you who are tired of trying to do it all. All of you who are tired of what the world offers but fails to deliver. All who are tired of your own failure, tired of living up, trying to live up to expectations, who are tired of the suffering and the death of, of, of ourselves and those we love. Come to Jesus and he will give you rest. Rest from the relentless pace of modern life. Rest from the anxiety about tomorrow. Rest from the fear of judgment, the fear of failure, from even the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus offers us rest. Why? Because he is good enough. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their, their works, just as God did from his. And if you think about that, that is incredible news, right? Because we're always working. We always have to strive, right? Whether it's in our careers, whether it's just, you know, trying to have enough to to um to get a house, to get a home, or or you know, to to make it to this and that. We're always striving, we're always working, we're always, you know, trying so hard. And it's never enough. 
It's never enough. And God's saying, hey, come to me and enter into my rest. Right? No more working. You don't have to work for your salvation. You don't have to work for approval. You don't have to work for to prove anything. He says, just rest because Jesus is enough. What he has done for us is enough. What he has created, what he has redeemed, he looks and says, it is very good. And that's why he's able to give us that rest, which he invites us to experience today and every day. He's enough to redeem us from our sin, enough to redeem us from death, enough to redeem our hearts, our minds, our, our relationships. And even God is enough. What he has done and what he continues to do and what he will do is enough to redeem even Christianity from where it has fallen in the past. And he is enough to redeem us from where we have fallen in the past. Rest from our works, good or bad. Rest from our efforts, pitiful or productive. Rest from the making and the consuming. Rest in knowing that Jesus is good and he is good enough and that he can make Christianity good for his name's sake. Next time, I'll share with you how Christianity is also good for us in giving us community, a safe space to belong to, and how Christianity gives us that purpose, that meaning, and that hope and freedom to live with. But today, I just want to leave you with that offer of Jesus to, to go to him and to experience the rest that he alone can provide. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, um, it's been such a chaotic morning with our internet not working and rushing over to here to St. Michael's. But I thank you for the rest that you give us, that you, you promise us. And it's not just a rest from activity. It's a rest, Father God, from all the striving whether it's striving to be, you know, uh, a better employee or a better partner or a better parent or better friend or whatever it is, Father, we're always striving and so many times we feel so short. Um, but Father, help us today on your Sabbath day to rest, to know that you say it is enough and that what you have done and what you're doing for us is enough. And that in you, we would experience that peace that the world cannot give the peace that you give to us because we are your children. Father, I pray that as we continue to grapple with this question of, of is Christianity good? And is this Christianity good enough for, for us to buy into, to invest our lives in, to go all in on? I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts that would make us living witnesses of you. I pray in your son's name. Amen.